Because what we're finding is when you have anxiety, you could play out that fear response, not in the body itself, but in the body maps within the brain. And this creates what I would call an illusion of fear because now you're feeling the sensations of a fear response, but they're not actually happening outside of the body itself. It's all internal in your head. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Pekulski. Today, we welcome Dr. Justin Feinstein to the podcast. Dr. Justin is an incredibly brilliant researcher and doctor in the area of clinical neuropsychology. He's an expert in the neuroscience of fear, and he's a trailblazer when it comes to understanding anxiety and treatments for anxiety and so many unique things that we're going to talk about in today's podcast. He has over 50 peer-reviewed publications in some of the top scientific journals, and his research has been featured in popular press, including New York Times, Time Magazine, and CBS National News. He is currently working on some very, very deep studies as far as the integration of the body and the mind. And we talk about that pretty extensively, the inextricable nature of the mind and body or the body and brain. His research has laid the foundation for novel therapies to ultimately alleviate stress and anxiety without the use of drugs. And we talk about all those things as well. He's recently become the president and director of the Float Research Collective. Floating, like a flotation device, is something that Dr. Feinstein has really focused his attention on in recent years because he's seen tremendous benefits and he's compared it against the common medical treatment, which I'll talk about today. So we talked today about why treating anxiety is so pertinent to the current current times and really what percentage of people are actually taking these medications, which will literally blow your mind. A full description of the fear response in the brain and the body, how adrenaline has different effects from person to person. We talk about CO2 in the nervous system. You guys have heard me talk about carbon dioxide at nauseum and ultimately how to modulate CO2 to most effectively implicate or modulate your nervous system. We talk about using breath for high performance and how to breathe safely. We talk about how to best utilize a flow tank for high performance. So I know you're going to love this podcast. Dr. Feinstein joins us today from Hawaii, and he's just an incredible wealth of information. Very, very articulate, very, very well organized in his thoughts. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Organifi, organifi.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 20% off. Ladies and gents, greens and reds should be part of your day. In my opinion, if you're not taking your greens and reds, there's a slight chance you may not be getting all the nutrients you need. Certainly men, when we speak of taking reds, we're looking at berries, looking at beets and such. Getting enough of those nutrients is very important to optimize for cardiovascular function, ultimately nitric oxide delivery, whether that be for muscle pumps or erectile function. And as far as greens, I just like to take greens because it makes me feel good makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I know that I'm covering my bases when it comes to all of my vitamins and ultimately tastes pretty darn good as well. And sometimes at night, I throw back one of their Organifi Gold. It comes in three fantastic flavors. It comes in the original, which I strongly suggest. It comes in pumpkin spice. It also comes in chocolate. This is loaded with adaptogen mushrooms and anti-inflammatory spices to just really calm down the nervous system. And, and when I had the owner of Organifi come on the podcast, he said, it's, it's like a mushroom made love to Christmas. And I'm like, that's probably a pretty good description of this. And at less than $2 a serving with our discount, it is an incredibly valuable addition to your team. Ladies and gents, that's Organifi.com slash muscle, a company that was very well known for their greens and now has expanded to reds, golds, proteins, and beyond. Head over to Organifi.com slash muscle. Use the code muscle to get hooked up with 20% off. And now enjoy the show. Dr. Justin Feinstein, sir, as I said just before we started recording, I'm a big fan. I've learned a lot about your stuff, and uh, you're definitely at the tip of the spear when it comes to the conversation around anxiety, flotation, CO2 tolerance. I'd love to dive into all of them today. Uh, first of all, thank you for joining. Happy to be here. And so if you could start off telling a little bit about your background. I know it's, it's pretty extensive. You've got, you got a lot of research papers uh, under your belt. You're very often cited as I spent the last few days researching everything I could about you. I'd love to just hear about kind of how you got your start. You know, for me, this probably started, you know, at this point over 20 years ago, 
I got very interested at a very early part of my life about how the brain works, the areas of the brain or the circuitry within the brain that control our fear response and how we might be able to tap into that circuitry and modulate anxiety. And to me, that's been the journey I've been on for uh, over two decades at this point. As you mentioned, we've published a ton of papers on this topic. We've come at it from multiple modalities. And, you know, to me, I think we're, we're actually starting at last to make some traction, both with, you know, what is the circuitry that controls and regulates our fear response? But also, you know, for me, I'm, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist by training. It's really about how could you apply that knowledge to the betterment of people who are suffering from anxiety? This has always been a key part of my research is, you know, what is the relevance of this to the patients who are suffering? And there's millions of people who aren't even patients who are just ordinary people over the past few years that have been suffering from high levels of anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's, I would say we're, we're in, in, in somewhat of an anxiety pandemic, if you will. Uh, both because of the pandemic, but also because of all the other stressors that are happening in life right now. We're, we're at a very tumultuous time in human civilization. And that's really where this fear circuitry starts getting primed and starts firing away and anxiety levels start picking up. So now more than ever, I think we need this knowledge and we need to be able to apply it as rapidly as possible to the population. And that's where I'm hoping to, to see benefit over the next few, few years. We, I think we have some new therapies that are being developed that could pretty rapidly get out to the general world. And I'm excited for that. I'd love to have you describe for us, if you will, what is the fear response? What's actually happening in the brain when we're experiencing the body and the brain, I guess, right? We can't really separate them. If you could maybe walk us through what that is. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could have an entire podcast just about this, of course. It's, it's actually quite complex. And, you know, this conversation, I will try to simplify things and, and make it a little bit more accessible. But, you know, the basic idea is the fear response is both in the brain and the body. It's impossible to dissociate this. In fact, it's in the maps contained within the brain that are moment to moment mapping our body. <laughs> so basically, it's within the body that's inside our brain. Yeah. Um, that's, that's where the fear response resides, the representation of what's happening in our body. But the body is obviously a big part of this. Everything from the rush of adrenaline that comes with sort of a, a primal fear response, which will cause a range of, of different effects, both uh, throughout the cardiovascular system. Your heart's going to start beating rapidly. Your blood pressure is going to go up. You're going to have this huge surge of, of sympathetic arousal. And on top of that, the areas of the brain are going to notice these homeostatic changes occurring within our body. And it's going to cause some alarm bells to go off. We're going to become hypervigilant. We're going to start focusing on this alarm that's going off in our brain. We're going to start really attending to the world around us and trying to figure out what's going on. Why is this fear response happening? And ultimately, the circuitry of the brain that is conveying this message is trying to convey a message of survival. It's a very primal message that it's sending to the entire nervous system to escape, to withdraw, to run away in the future to avoid this situation. The, the whole notion of what fear is and what anxiety is about is survival. It's our nervous system's most primal way of alerting us that if we don't change our behavior immediately, we may no longer exist. It's fascinating that through evolution, this response has developed more and more. You see fear responses in some of the most basic forms of life from a Drosophila fruit fly hmm. all the way up to, you know, worms. They'll show very basic signs of avoidance behavior, which is sort of the essence of a fear response. But all the way now into humans, not only do we have this fear response, but we have this self-reflective response on top of it that comes in the form of anxiety. 
<laughs> where we're not only reacting to the situation, but now we're cogitating over it. We're thinking about it. We're ruminating about it. We're worried about when it's going to happen the next time. We're trying to control this response all the time in order to minimize it. But in the process of doing so, we cause some problems that we could talk about. But I think the, the basic idea here is when a fear response is happening, it's triggering a lot of reactions both within the body and within the body's representation inside the brain. And to me, that's a fascinating interplay of what's happening with the fear response and a fascinating part of you know the anxious condition because what we're finding is when you have anxiety you could play out that fear response not in the body itself but in the body maps within the brain and this creates what i would call an illusion of fear because now you're feeling the sensations of a fear response, but they're not actually happening outside of the body itself. It's all internal in your head. And this is a big part of what happens in chronic anxiety. People who are debilitated by anxiety is they're, they're kind of stuck in these, these primal fear responses that are replaying themselves inside uh, the brain's body maps. And, and to me, this is a part that I think we could target with different types of therapy, including uh, what you alluded to earlier with uh, the carbon dioxide modulations and also with flotation therapy. I think those are two great therapies that really target the body maps within our brain. Fascinating. Is there a genetic component to this? So, uh, you know, obviously some, or is it exclusively environmental? I think a lot of our fear circuitry and our response to threatening stimuli in the world is uh, genetically determined to some extent. Hmm. It's not entirely. You know, I think early in life, if you deal with adversity, if you if you encounter trauma or excessive amounts of stress, early in life, this circuitry could be wired in a way that it's primed, primed to respond to almost every type of situation or stressor. And so I would say you have this genetic component. If you have this genetic component and you've had an early life trauma or uh, an early life stressor, you're now probably for the rest of your life going to be in this, this sort of prime situation for fear. If you don't have the genetic component, but you still have this early life trauma, you will have some of that. And then I think people who have neither the genetic component nor the early life uh, adversity component they have a good chance of only having this circuitry primed and sensitized during traumatic situations when they encounter the, the type, of, type of things that cause PTSD. So what, is, what does that look like from a genetic component? Is it literally like neuroanatomy or is it going to be neurochemistry or like what is it? Because obviously I would presume neurochemistry has got to be significantly impacted by genetics and, and I'm guessing neuroanatomy is probably impacted by genetics. So is it going to be you know, the size of the hippocampus or the size of the amygdala or the sensitivity of the amygdala, like what types of things are we looking at here to kind of differentiate genetics? I'm curious because, and the reason I bring this up, and you'll probably see this in, in your kids, I see a very different response between my son and my daughter. And so one of them kind of responds more like me, one of them responds more like their mother. And I'm just curious how much of that is just my, like, maybe it's their learned, you know, watching behavior versus like what's actually going on in the brain. You know, it's, it's a fascinating aspect you know, when you, when you start talking about the idea of different levels of sensitivity within specific regions of the brain. So you brought up the amygdala. This is a region that, you know, has been probably one of the most heavily studied regions of the brain for the past few decades. And when you think about the amygdala, when the lay person hears the word amygdala, the word that's most commonly associated with it is fear. It's kind of, uh, uh, created this whole association that the amygdala is the brain's fear center. And that's where I started my research into the amygdala, you know, many decades ago was with this basic hypothesis that the amygdala is a central region for producing fear in the brain. But over the past few decades, my research and others that we could talk about has actually I would say completely changed my point of view on this association between the amygdala and fear. 
And in fact, I am now of the belief, based off of the data, that the amygdala is intricately involved in inhibiting fear, hmm. in inhibiting pain, and on top of it, is also intricately involved in modulating our respiration in response to triggers of fear and panic. And this is a part that, you know, we really didn't know even 15, 20 years ago. This is all stuff that's happened over the past decade that has completely sort of changed the view of what is the amygdala's role with regard to fear. And, and so, you know, to me, what you're talking about with genetics makes a big deal because if the amygdala say changes in size or shape or number of neurons or degree to which it's activating in response to say stressors or threatening stimuli, you've now not just changed your ability to inhibit fear, but you've also now changed your uh, ability to control respiration. And when I say control respiration, I mean it. The amygdala, it turns out, could actually completely halt your breathing. It could create a state of apnea where your breathing has come to a complete stop. And we had no idea. We always thought this was the brainstem. As long as I could think back, it's always been the only areas of the brain that could actually stop breathing are within nuclei of the brainstem. Well, it turns out that was not totally correct. It, the, the amygdala has a direct route to the brainstem nuclei. And through that connectivity profile, it could actually inhibit breathing. Hmm. This is brand new information. Most people don't know about this yet. There's been papers that have been published by myself and others showing this link. But it's fascinating to me because now every moment of the day could become part of your fear response. When your breathing stops, the first thing that changes is your CO2 starts going up. And that's what the brain is detecting. And that's what's signaling a very primal form of fear that I call chemoreceptive fear, but it's fear due to high levels of CO2. That could be creating this chronic sort of vicious cycle of anxiety. And what's, what's really fascinating, we'll have to talk about this a little more detail, but I'll just give you a very quick of you, what's really fascinating is you could modulate your sensitivity to CO2. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk about that. The, the amygdala itself, you know, you're born with this, as we we're talking about. Every human, except the few that I've studied over the years, has an amygdala. And it's like a sponge, this area of the brain. It's absorbing information every moment of the day from the moment of your first breath. It's modulating its response to that information in real time. So if you're being traumatized, it's collecting all of that sensory data at the moment of the trauma. And now that sensory data is being linked, associated, if you will, with a fear response. And so over time, you could change the amygdala shape. You could change the number of neurons that are within the amygdala, and you could change how it fires to different stimuli. But you're kind of stuck with it. You can't really get rid of your amygdala, nor should you. But what you can change is its sensitivity to certain stimuli, and you can change your response very specifically to one of the most primal triggers of fear, which is carbon dioxide. And to me, that's really neat. For the first time, even if you're genetically endowed with a crappy position in life, <laughs> which, trust me, there's millions of people who who have this sort of high sensitivity to fear and anxiety, you know, this is a ubiquitous condition. So if you're, if you're stuck with that, well, guess what? It turns out there are ways you could modulate this response. So I'd love to come back to that in a minute. What I'd like to touch on before we kind of move from there is the other triggers for, for this fear response and anxiety response, right? So if we know that CO2 tolerance is one, accumulation of CO2, I've also heard some other potential causes of, of this fear response. You know, some people have just crippling fear. And so, you know, I, and some people I hear is, is a deficiency in certain hormones and certain people, maybe it may be uh, just inflammation. Like, I'm curious if there's other things that come to mind or like, hey, these are typically the things that are associated with maybe recurring bouts of anxiety. I think one of the big things that uh, we touched on a little bit is adrenaline. Mm -hmm. You know, this is 
flowing through our body all the time. It's, it's constantly being pumped out by the adrenal glands. The brain has a, a direct way to trigger adrenaline release, but it turns out different people are more or less sensitive to those perturbations that adrenaline causes. So when your heart rate starts shooting up, when you have that feeling of palpitation happening in your chest, right? Some people, you know, react to that with joy and they're, they're excited and they want to like, you know, approach that and, and, and charge forward. Right. And then there's a lot of people who, who feel that and they, they cower, they want to run away. They feel like uh, uh, they might be dying. You know, they start having panic attacks over that feeling. Right. And we just published a really neat fMRI study with my, my colleague, Saib Kals at Laurie Institute for Brain Research, where we actually injected people with a synthetic form of adrenaline while they're in the fMRI scanner, while we're, while we're looking at their brain activity. And we did this in both healthy subjects, but also people with clinical conditions like anxiety disorders who have that high sensitivity to that heartbeat sensation. And it turns out we were able to find this very specific region in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. So sort of sitting right below the forehead, right near where the eyeballs are, go just a little bit back. And it's this small little region that has direct connections with the amygdala that seems to be the uh, ultimate surveyor of whether or not the adrenaline is going to lead to an anxiety response. Hmm. So everyone's getting this injection, you know, the healthy people, the anxious people. But what's fascinating is at the smallest dose that we could give them, the anxious people were feeling anxious already, whereas the healthy people were barely even feeling it. Right. So, you know, to me, one area outside of carbon dioxide that triggers fear is adrenaline itself and our reactivity to the sensations that adrenaline might cause. And that's another area where I think, once again, through systematic exposure, you could teach the brain not to be so sensitive to this. So give me an idea what that might look like. So like inducing adrenaline through exercise, perhaps, or through slightly stressful exp exposures, experiences, graded up over time? A absolutely. I mean, one of the fascinating things in my uh, neck of the woods in terms of anxiety disorder literature is there's a large literature of people with anxiety who avoid at all costs exercise. I have a, a, a colleague of mine at the University of Texas, Jasper Smits, who's, who studies this and is also studying CO2 now, which I'm really excited about. And what ends up happening in a large proportion of people who are anxious is they won't, they don't want to feel the adrenaline. They don't want to feel the sensations that come with an intense workout and they will avoid it at all costs. And, and that's part of the anxiety condition is you avoid anything that could trigger the anxiety or anything that could trigger those sorts of fear responses that you don't like. Once again, I do think there are a lot of people who are athletes that are anxious and have this sort of high sensitivity to fear, but they have trained themselves to overcome it. I think that's actually proof of this idea that you are able to overcome these very primordial physiological responses. Just with like intentional graded exposure. Yeah, I think it, I think that's a key part of it. You know, the, the types of exposure I do are, are more systematic in the sense that we could actually inject people with different levels of adrenaline, a synthetic form of adrenaline called isoproteranol, or with carbon dioxide, I could give you very specific doses. I could give you 5% CO2 or 20% CO2, or I could go all the way up to 35% CO2, and we could sort of grade the exposure so you start small and work your way up. And of course, all of this is done in, you know, with the utmost of safety and ethical concerns. These are you know, experiments being done in the laboratory. What's neat is I think we're finally getting to the point where we could begin to start taking some of these laboratory-based exposure methods out into the, into the wild, in the real world. Yeah. Could you explain to the audience what CO2 tolerance ultimately is? Or, or I know you kind of briefly got into it, but I'd love to understand what it is and then obviously the implications and, and how we can start to control it. In order to understand CO2, you have to understand this idea of chemoreception. 
in our brain and in our brain stem, especially in areas of the medulla, but also in the periphery of our body, in the bloodstream, in the aortic and carotid bodies, in our bloodstream, not too far away from our heart, there are these, these small cells called chemoreceptors that are specifically tuned to detecting changes in pH level of the blood and the cerebral spinal fluid. What ends up happening is if they detect the pH becoming more acidic, they start firing. And that's what's triggering this fear response. That's what's triggering our respiration, it turns out. You know, a lot of people think that the way uh, we detect uh, uh, how to breathe and when to breathe is through oxygen. But it turns out our nervous system is remarkably insensitive to detecting oxygen. And in our central nervous system, we really have very crude uh, uh, ability to feel any changes in oxygen. But when it comes to CO2, we are remarkably sensitive to even the smallest fluctuation because what CO2 is doing is it's creating a more acidic concentration in our blood. The, you know, part of the, the breakdown of CO2 is it turns into carbonic acid. And that's going to create this sort of shift in pH towards more acidity, and it's going to start firing these chemoreceptors. So one thing to understand is these chemoreceptors don't just detect CO2, they detect changes in pH. And it turns out one of the biggest things that shifts our pH in our blood is carbon dioxide. So I think that's one important thing to understand. And the second important thing to understand is it's the CO2 that guides our respiration, not oxygen. This is how the nervous system is wired. It's not wired to detect oxygen. It's wired to detect CO2 and modulate our breathing accordingly. And so when these chemoreceptors are firing, the reflex is to start breathing harder, to start clearing the lungs of the CO2, to start hyperventilating even. That's the reflex when these chemoreceptors get triggered. So when someone's feeling the strong desire to breathe, let's say they're, they're doing a high intensity exercise or even someone who's unhealthy walking upstairs, they feel that strong desire to breathe. That's really the nervous system responding to the chemoreceptors. That's right. That is what, what I call a suffocation alarm, which is essentially the chemoreceptors firing like crazy inside the brainstem and propagating that throughout the rest of the brain. And basically saying, if, if you don't, start getting enough air soon, you are going to die. It's, it's, it's a very primordial response, these suffocation alarms. So it's getting the CO2 out and getting more oxygen ultimately. Exactly. And that, that is what it was meant to do. You know, if you're in a cave, you know, back in the, in the times and all of a sudden you're not getting enough fresh air in that cave and the CO2 levels are rising inside the cave, it's trying to say, get the hell out of this cave right now and get some fresh air, right? And, and so, you know, these, these receptors were even found in Drosophila fruit flies. Hmm. You know, fascinating experiments at Caltech have basically shown that when a fruit fly detects a high concentration of CO2 in the air that it's flying in, it will automatically fire the chemoreceptors and it will fly away from that area of airspace. Hmm. And fruit flies, it turn out, release CO2 quite a bit when they're stressed out. Hmm. So it's like one of the most ancient signals of both stress and sort of avoidance of whatever's causing that stress. It's very and cool. And once again, it started with the chemoreceptors. Very cool. Do you have any protocols or suggest, suggest any protocols that are most effective for having people improve their CO2 tolerance? So I think there's a couple different things kind of all happening at once now. You have, you know, people like Brian McKenzie, who, you know, has been training athletes on CO2 tolerance now for decades. He was way ahead of the game. You know, he's developing stuff. You know, you, you also have, you know, people uh, uh, like Wim Hof, who have developed, I think, really one of the most fascinating modulations of CO2 that I've come across. Because essentially what Wim Hof is doing is he's taking you from the low end of CO2 all the way up to the high end of CO2 in a very short amount of time and then repeating it three times or more. And, and this is a fascinating 
way to modulate your chemoreceptors, I think in a very safe manner. You know, on YouTube, for example, he now has his his basic breathing video, which I think is only about 10 or 11 minutes long, that he released right before the pandemic. And it has over 50 million views right wow. now. So, you know, I think it's taking the world by storm because it works very effectively. And it works because it's modulating CO2 from one side all the way to the other side. So for those who don't know what Wim Hof is, essentially, he's having you take, you know, 30 uh, sort of rapid breaths. It's not full on hyperventilation. It's, it's just at a faster pace. And you take those 30 breaths very deeply. You try to get a lot of oxygen in and then you clear out your lungs a little bit. But over time, you're going to be blowing off the CO2 during this breathing period. You're going to go. And every time you're exhaling, more CO2 is coming out. But because you're doing it at a faster pace, your CO2 is getting lower and lower and lower and lower. Okay. And then after the 30 breaths, he has you just hold your breath on the video up to 90 seconds. There's a lot of people who've been doing this, including myself, who could get up to triple that even. I would say uh, for sure double that. So hitting three minutes on a Wim Hof breath hold is not hard. And there's some tricks that he creates in your physiology that allow you to hold your breath for that long. But essentially what is happening is you're holding your breath more and more, more and more CO2 is being created in your body and not being cleared because you're not breathing. And so your CO2 levels are going up and up and up and up and up. And then at the end of the breath hold, he has you take a recovery breath and then do it all over again three times. And so you're going from one end of the CO2 scale all the way to the other end. What happens is the first few times you do this, you're going to feel a lot of intense sensations when you play with the chemoreceptor system like this. But after you do it for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, after it becomes part of a daily practice, suddenly you've overridden that response. And in fact, you could, the way I explain it to my kids is you could remain calm in the face of the storm. That, that's what's happening with Wim Hof. The idea of Wim Hof is not to push yourself. I think people get that wrong. It's like, oh, everyone has to hold their breath for as long as they could. No, in fact, if you really understand his instruction, his, his true instruction set, it's not to push yourself. As soon as you're starting to fidget during the breath hold, feeling like I got to get some more air, just breathe. Just get another gulp of air. Don't push yourself. The idea is to just get used to these sensations and know that you could remain completely calm and not have to move a muscle because it's okay. You know, that's the neat part is when you learn that the chemoreceptive primal alarm is not necessarily signaling imminent death, suddenly you now are in control of your own response. You're in control of your own ability to override fear. So. Taking a performance lens to what you just said, can you talk to us about why in that moment people are seeing acute transient increases in performance? Like what's happening at a physiological level? Which moment? So when people are doing these breath holds, so example being a guy can do 10, 20 pushups, he does a breath hold, so he's doing 40 or 50. I see this all the time, right? So there's a couple of different mechanisms at play, I'm sure. Anything that comes to mind that, that stands out as to why that's well, that's happening? It, there are a couple different mechanisms. One of the big ways is adrenaline. They, they've actually done some studies now with the Wim Hof method. You're supposed to breathe through your abdomen. So in general, in life, you should start breathing through your abdomen. I think we're, we're, we're very poor abdominal breathers to begin with. But in Wim Hof, that's the key part. All 30 of those fast, rapid breaths are through the abdomen. Really pushing your, your stomach out on the inhale. You should see it rise. And every time you do that, you are triggering a release of adrenaline. <laughs> That's like one of the quickest ways to arouse your sympathetic nervous system is through abdominal breathing, especially deep abdominal breathing. And then on top of that, when you start the breath hold and your CO2 starts going up, that is triggering a further release of adrenaline, right? And so I think what's happening on these people who are actually doing certain types of performance activities, say push-ups, while they're holding their breath, is they are feeling this huge surge of adrenaline that's sort of muting out all those signs that normally would say, stop it, you're going too far, you're pushing too hard. It allows you to do superhuman things. Now, I want to 
just stop for a second and give everybody a disclaimer, which is I don't think you should do the Wim Hof method unless you have an oxygen ring on because your oxygen levels will start dropping and you won't be aware of it. As we've discussed, we, we have very crude sensitivity to oxygen. And if you're wearing a, a pulse oximeter, oftentimes you could wear these as rings now, but I've seen them on watches too. Eventually, these will become very ubiquitous. In real time, you could see what your oxygen levels are at. And if, say, you're holding your breath and your oxygen levels start getting into the 80% level or 70% level, this is your blood oxygen saturation. You need to start breathing. You know, I've seen people pass out on the Wim Hof. I've seen people pass out trying to do push-ups while they're holding their breath. And that's dangerous. I don't, I don't think anyone should do that. But if you're wearing a pulse oximeter, you could see when your O2 levels start dropping and right around 80% to 70% range, you need to start breathing again. I think that's, that's a really important part of doing this in a safe way. And so everyone that I do this method with, I always make sure they're wearing a, a real time pulse oximeter and it actually starts buzzing once their O2 levels hit a certain value and you don't even have to look at the ring. That's when you know it's time to, to start breathing again. Yeah, I did the oxygen advantage course with Patrick McEwen and obviously we're doing a lot of breath restriction stuff and he has everybody wearing a pulse ox. It was definitely, it was well thought out because some people definitely had, didn't have any idea what was going on about it. And, and even if you do, I think it's certainly possible that you could, you could black out. And, and so that, I think that's important for people to recognize is safety needs to come first in this. When you're modulating CO2, you, you're modulating uh, both the CO2 and the oxygen because holding your breath, yes, the CO2 increases, but over time, so does your oxygen. It starts depleting. And you've got to, you've got to stay in a safe zone here. Um, you, you, you could pass out. It could be very dangerous. And so that's why I always recommend either A, just stick to what the YouTube video is doing. The YouTube video takes you through a 10-minute guided breathing exercise by Wim Hof himself. And the longest you will hold your breath is for about 90 seconds, which even if my kids do that, they could still handle that um, after they've practiced enough. And so I don't think there's a lot of danger or risk with the YouTube uh, um, uh, video. But if you start going beyond that and holding your breath longer, that's where you really want to get one of these oxygen uh, rings or pulse oximeters to make sure that you're staying in a safe range. Do you think there's also something at play? with the elevated CO2 actually causing a greater release of the oxygen from the hemoglobin to be utilized inside the muscle for energy production? Yeah. So one of the things CO2 does is it dilates our blood vessels and allows us to absorb oxygen more rapidly. And it makes sense, you know, from a physiological perspective, if, if the idea is, you know, high levels of CO2 could be a imminent threat and the nervous system interprets it as we're not getting enough oxygen, it would naturally want to open up those blood vessels and try to absorb as much of that oxygen as it possibly could, right? So I think this is a, a key part of what is happening when you do have high levels of CO2 and, and perhaps, you know, the high levels of adrenaline in combination are what allow these sort of superhuman performances to occur in the midst of the two. I just am worried when I hear you say that is that, you know, people are going to end up hurting themselves because they, they become superhuman, but eventually that oxygen is not going to, to be there anymore. Yeah. One of the papers that I found really uh, interesting and intriguing that you were part of was interoception and, and mental health. And so interoception is something that I'm a huge advocate of, of understanding and, and uh, acquiring the skill set of. And I'm curious how that bridge was made between interoception and mental health. And if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So my colleague at Laureate Institute for Brain Research, Saib Khalsa, who we were just discussing earlier with the adrenaline fMRI study, he uh, put on an interoception summit, the first one ever at uh, the Laureate Institute in 2016. Hmm. And we invited all the world's experts on interoception and mental health to come to that meeting. And we had a two-day conversation where we tried to link the two camps in a very systematic way. And the paper you're referring to is actually the outcome of that meeting. All the attendees who were there were co-authors on this paper. 
And it provides sort of a very fascinating 10,000 foot point of view on how these come together. But for those who, who don't know what interoception is, it's, it's a newer concept, in fact. Um, it's only been around for, I would say, maybe 20, 30 years and only really picking up in notoriety over the past decade. And the, the notion is that there's this neural anatomical pathway that basically connects the internal world of the body with the brain. And by internal world, I mean everything from your heart itself to the entire cardiovascular system to the chemoreceptors that we were just talking about, both in the bloodstream and in the central nervous system, and to the entire periphery of the body, all the muscles of our body, in fact connect in to this interoceptive pathway and then it goes into the brain and it has this sort of hierarchical connectivity where it creates more and more elegant maps of what is happening moment to moment throughout the inner body the visceral body a lot of people call it because it's really the visceral organs your gut is a big part of this representation and so interoception essentially is the moment to moment mapping of all this internal information about your body and what's happening and the current state of the body. And really, I think what it's doing is it's giving the brain a snapshot of how you feel. That's really what interoception is about. It's how do you feel? And is your body in a state of homeostasis or is it in a state of dishomeostasis? And interoception is really the way our, our, our central nervous system is able to sense that and correct it rapidly. You know, th this is a really important part of, of how we're able to survive once again. And so the idea of interoception and mental health, I think, is very natural when you view it in that context, because the way we feel, our conscious awareness moment to moment, and the subjective feeling of that uh, experience, whether you're suffering or whether you're performing optimally and feeling great, are all determined by our, our interoceptive sense and sensitivity. And, and so naturally, people with mental health issues, especially anxiety, have a really exquisite sensitivity to these interoceptive changes and the experience that that creates in them. So just going back to that great study of Dr. Kalsa, as we talked about earlier, even a small amount of adrenaline could trigger this huge surge of anxiety in somebody with an anxiety disorder. And so I think we have to understand that interoception is key to mental health, part one, but part two, it's also key in explaining why we have mental health issues. Right. And I think probably is a good understanding as to why people spend so much time in their life muting sensations with alcohol and food and drugs. And it's an attempt to like numb themselves from the waist down so they don't have to experience these sensations, right? It sounds like that's that's like self-medication 101 right there, right? It, that's that's what's happening actually, especially when you take these like heavily GABAergic drugs like benzodiazepines, which, you know, one in eight Americans over the past year have taken a benzo. Crazy. It's one of the most heavily prescribed drugs we have in, in uh, the medical system. and that will basically flood this interoceptive system with what's called GABA, which is the primary inhibitory uh, neurotransmitter in the brain. And it specifically targets areas of the brain like the insula and the amygdala that are creating this interoceptive sense of fear. And so, yes, there is muting from the body down but it's really the once again the body in the brain mm -hmm. <laughs> that it's muting and it's not allowing you to a feel the fear response so it's temporarily providing you with a moment of relief but then when the drug wears off it comes right back and you have to take the drug again and what it's happening and it has been happening since the the 1960s when these drugs were released is now you have millions of people who are physiologically addicted to benzodiazepines. Withdrawal, by the way, from benzodiazepines is more severe and more life-threatening than opioid withdrawal. Wow. Which is already by itself horrendous. 
So the pharmacy. So, well, this, is, this is a major issue. When a doctor hands you a prescription for a benzo, yes, they're trying to give you some relief from your anxiety. At the same time, they're not telling you that, hey, you may not be able to come off of this prescription. You may be stuck on this for the rest of your life. And, and to me, that's that's not right. It's a huge problem. And, and again, pharmaceutical companies are the only ones that win, right? That's the challenge. So this is, a, I think, a good segue into your work and like discuss CO2 tolerance. And we've discussed the benefits of, of uh, training, ultimately, your, your ability to tolerate CO2. And now moving along to float research that you've been um, diving into for many, many years. I'd love to understand it. Obviously, I, I've tried floating and I'm sure there's some nuance to it. Uh, but I'd love to have you describe kind of what's happening when someone gets into a float tank and why we should consider doing it. So I, I think especially for your audience, Ben, you, you know, you're dealing with high performance athletes, yep. people who are pushing themselves to the limit and stimulating their body, especially their musculature in ways that average ordinary people like myself cannot even begin to understand. I, I, I have to admit, Ben, I, you know, I, I, I don't understand social media. I'm out of the mainstream. When I Googled your name and I saw your picture in those weightlifting competitions, that was incredible. I mean, it's, it's a feat of strength what you guys are capable of doing. But you have to understand you are putting wear and tear on your body in a way that no other human is doing. Right. And you, you have to, you have to, when you're uh, going through that, give yourself an equal amount of time to recover, to heal, to repair. And that's where I think float therapy is actually a perfect complement to all of the, the amazing things you guys have been doing. And you really need to sort of incorporate it on a regular basis, especially if you're going through those intensive workouts. But just to give people a sense of what float therapy is, it's the most advanced tool our society has to minimize stimulation on the body and on the nervous system. It's it to me. It's fascinating because it hits both the body and the brain. Mm-hmm. It, it minimizes stimulation, and in a world that we live in now, with twenty four seven connectivity, with these intensive workouts where we're perhaps overstimulating ourselves on purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Floating is an antidote. It will a help calm the nervous system down very naturally, not in this synthetic way where you take, say, a benzo and flood the system with GABAergic uh, 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 medication. No, in a very natural way, it will calm the nervous system down because it's no longer being flooded with stimulation. And at the same time, it will allow all of those muscles in your body to relax and heal in a way that we've never actually seen before. I mean, there, there are other ways, of course, like with ice baths and other ways of trying to reduce inflammation that people use in these situations. But in terms of a a recovery tool where you could get in with your muscles on fire and you could come out and you don't even feel like uh, you worked out, it's it's that sort of big of a shift that we're seeing in the literature and in anecdotal reports from all these really high-performing athletes, people like Tom Brady, Steph Curry, Novak Djokovic, um, all of them float on a regular basis. And uh, uh, some of them have float tanks in their home. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's becoming, I think, a much more mainstream in that way. But the purpose of it really is about minimizing stimulation. And, and I don't know if, if you want to get into this, but I could give people an idea, if they like, of how we minimize the stimulation. Because I think people hear float therapy, are like, what does that mean? Go in the ocean, go in my bathtub? What are we talking about here? Yeah, no, I love to hear it. It's actually really neat. To me, when I first heard of float therapy, I heard about it in the context of sensory deprivation, which I think is the incorrect name, because what we're finding is we we are enhancing the internal senses, this whole interoceptive idea that we just spoke about. Well, when you're floating, you could feel your heartbeat. You could feel your breath. You could feel your interoceptive visceral self in a way that you normally can't in day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. So I don't like using the word sensory deprivation. I think it's a complete misnomer. You're, you're, you're actually enhancing the internal senses. But on top of it, you're not depriving the external senses of anything. It's important for people to recognize that. You could have the lights on if you want when you float. You could have music playing if you want when you float. 
You can get in and out of the float pool whenever you'd like, or the float tank. You're not stuck in in a box or in a pod. Mm-hmm. You're 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 able to maneuver. And in the float pools, you know, I've been using. We don't even have an enclosure. These are wide open pools. The ones I've been building. Imagine a ten foot circular pool, like a giant jacuzzi, but only a foot of water. And in that water, I immersed over two thousand pounds of Epsom salt, magnesium sulfate. And it essentially becomes a mattress of water. You don't have to move a single muscle to float. It's as dense as the Dead Sea. And so you're floating effortlessly. You don't have to move a single muscle. All of a sudden, all of that push of gravity that's been on our spinal cord all day long, and especially if you're lifting weights, you know, it's hard enough just being a human on this world and having gravity pushed down on us. If you're lifting weights, you're having orders of magnitude more than gravity pushing down on your spinal cord, right? Suddenly, when you're floating, that spinal cord gets to decompress. And all of those muscles in the back around it get to decompress. And suddenly, muscle tension just starts melting away. This is one of the biggest effects we're seeing in our research is you see a a, a giant shift in muscle tension. And it turns out that it's not just weightlifters and high-performance athletes that have this problem. But people with severe anxiety and stress carry it in their back, in their neck. They're constantly tense. Their muscles are tense as can be. And that could be actually driving some of the anxiety. And what, what's fascinating to me is when you release that tension, suddenly the anxiety releases too. And, and I, I've often wondered, could that be part of the draw to weightlifting? Is that you create this huge amount of tension and then when it's gone, it releases. And suddenly you, you, re- you receive this release of inner tension as well. I, 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 I don't know. It's one of them for sure. And obviously the massive endorphin releases is another one. I think for me, that was it. It was like I needed an escape when I started and it was either going to be drugs, food or exercise. So I was like, I, I've somehow miraculously landed on the one that was quote unquote good for me. And for sure, I was addicted. For sure, I was obsessed. And, and it allowed me, it was my therapy through the years, right? I've been doing it for 25 years. And Definitely was my therapy. And I'm sure probably 50% or more of the population listening is, is maybe not knowingly addicted to exercise. Like if they don't, if they don't do it, they don't feel good that day. They're not in a good mood. We're all, we, you know, we're all, we're all addicts at some level, right? We just chose the one that may be more constructive. And, and, and to me, that's what's so nice about floating is it pairs so well with exercise. In fact, the way you want to do it is, is, you know, basically right after your workout. That's the best time to to float is allow the muscles to go from this intense experience of strain to this completely relaxed, tension-free environment. And, you know, I should mention that, you know, while you're in this pool of water, we heat the water to the temperature of your skin. And then we heat the air to the temperature of the water. And so everything's right around 95 degrees or so, a few degrees cooler than core temperature. By doing that, you don't need to thermoregulate. You don't feel uh, hot. You don't feel cold. It should feel right in the middle. Perfect. So you reduce stimulation on your nervous system by getting rid of the need to thermoregulate. And then on top of it, we create it in a big room that's light proof, that's soundproof. By doing that, you, you remove all forms of visual and auditory stimulation on the nervous system. Now, once again, you don't have to have that. You could have the lights on. In the pools I've created, essentially, you just lift your hand up and an infrared wave system will turn the lights on and off. And you could have sound as well if you'd like. But I think the idea of a fully immersive float session is you try to minimize stimulation on your nervous system to a you know, as, as much as you possibly can, you know, when you're floating, you're supposed to be lying on this mattress of water, not moving a single muscle, just allowing the water to do all the work for you. You know, with that said, when I float, I typically stretch for the first 10, 15 minutes of the float just to try to further release the muscle tension. But then afterwards, I just try to get into that float state where you're not moving a single muscle. So I got a couple of questions that came up. What do you, what do you say to the, what I'm going to guess is 50% or more of the population who's like, screw that one. I'm not getting in this thing. Cause I'm in a contained environment Two, I don't know that I could just lay there for however long. What do you say to those people? So a couple of things, you know, in my open pool, there is no enclosure. I mean, this is literally, if you could get into a giant jacuzzi, there's no reason you couldn't get into this thing. 
um, it's, it, it reduces the barrier to entry because I think a lot of people, even if you don't have uh, full-blown anxiety disorders, a lot of people just by very nature have claustrophobia. Yeah. And you've designed this that people can purchase? People could purchase it. It's not me who designed it. It's it's a, a great engineer in uh, England who basically flew out to my laboratory in Tulsa and built these beautiful round open pools. The company is called Float Away. You know, the idea, you know, is you reduce the barrier to entry by removing the enclosure. I think by the nature, a lot of people don't want to go into an enclosed environment. Now, with that said, with all of these other types of float tanks out there, whether it looks like an eggshell pod or like a, a cabin, like a, a seven or eight foot tall cabin, you could keep the doors open. You're not going to get the perfect temperature, of course, when you do that, but it's not a big deal. If, if you want to just see what it's like, but you, you kind of are worried about the claustrophobia, just go and keep the door open and keep the lights on if you want too. all of them have lights as well. But, you know, if, if it's a real issue, you really should be looking for people who are offering open floats, because I think that is so simple. It's just like going into a bathtub. It, it, you could get in and out whenever you want. There is no claustrophobia. So the second point you brought up, which is, I think, a, a good one as well, and I hear it all the time with my anxiety disordered patients that I study, is I don't want to be in there by myself with myself. Are you kidding me? I tell it's so funny. In in all my first studies with the anxiety disordered patients, the, the first thing they ask is, how long is it for? And I say, Oh, you have up to an hour. And I use that term up to. It's like like you're not in there for a whole hour. You could get out after five minutes if you want. The craziest part is after the hour was over, I told all the anxiety disordered patients that they had flowed for an hour. They were shocked. They thought they had only been in there for 10, 20, 30 minutes. Time goes really interestingly inside of a float tank mm -hmm. and you know you could be in there for hours and it may only feel like you know a snap of the finger and you have to realize the reason that is occurring is because the nervous system is in a complete state of quiescence it's one of the few moments it's ever been exposed to where there is no stimulation coming in and it could fully relax it doesn't have to respond to the demands of the world around it anymore. And so I think what's happening is people want to actually stay in this state for a lot longer than they realize because their nervous system has been craving this. Right. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah, I, th I think there's probably a lot of people listening who are curious, interested, but it's always bang for your buck conversation, right? Same with meditation. Like I think most people would acknowledge the benefits of meditation, but people don't acknowledge the scope of the benefit. They're like, ah, oh, it's getting you know, 30 minutes of my time. Like I could do something else. I think that's kind of where this enters the conversation around, uh, around recovery. Like, okay, if I got to spend an hour in there, is this the greatest bang for your buck? And it sounds like it's probably, it probably is. You know, th th this is what I always say. If you're the person who says, I don't have time for this. You need it. You are exactly. Listen, <laughs> if you're just, if you're that person, listen right now, you need to get into a float tank right now, make an appointment because the truth is we have a limited amount of hours in the day. We have a limited amount of hours in our life. There's no doubt about this, but you have so much more life to live if you could get your nervous system into a better state of equilibrium. You know, you bring that energy with you wherever you go. If you're anxious, if you're stressed, everyone around you in that room is going to start vicariously becoming anxious and stressed. And so you do you, not just yourself good, but all the people around you good if you could get your nervous system into a healthier state of equilibrium. Yeah. And that's what floating does. It only takes an hour. And trust me, the benefits that we're witnessing in our research actually sustain well beyond that hour. In fact, we're seeing effects 48 hours post-float in terms of anxiety reduction and stress reduction. 48 hours, we're seeing residue later. So, you know, it's not just like a bath or a shower where you get out and maybe feel good for, you know, 10, 15 minutes, and then you're off to your day. There's a residue to floating that perseveres into the rest of your day. And I think this is an important part of understanding what float therapy is. Love it. There's, so there's two questions there. First one being, have you guys actually studied the maybe neurochemical differences or maybe the hormonal differences pre and post float. And the second follow-up is, is a logical one is like how often? So the first one we have, we, we've, we've done some studies with cortisol. You know, there's been past research by Tom Fine at University of Toledo showing that 
floating will reduce cortisol levels. We've, we've also been looking at inflammatory changes and how cytokine levels may shift pre and post float. Mm. Uh, Flux, who is a student of mine, had been analyzing these data and is, is just beginning to sort of write up the paper that we're going to try to publish later this year. So we are looking at those things. We're also looking at things like magnesium. You know, you're in a, a giant pool saturated with Epsom salt. Right. And that has magnesium in it. So is, is that being absorbed transdermally, perhaps? So we're looking at those things. I can't say much because we're, we're still getting those papers ready for publication. Uh, but we are looking in the brain. We, we actually have partnered with an amazing company called Neuroverse to measure the brain waves while people are floating using a small uh, EEG device that's wireless, just rests in the forehead. We're also beginning to write up the results for those papers. But what I could tell you right now is we, we saw a change in brain waves during floating that we haven't seen in any other conscious state um, hmm. in humans. I think it's a very unique and distinct signature that floating is creating in the nervous system. That's very cool. And as far as how often someone should consider doing it, obviously maybe as often as, as possible, but do you have any protocols that you suggest? One thing I should mention to people is, you know, my laboratory was basically the first to really study floating systematically, especially in patients with stress and anxiety disorders. And, you know, the, 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 the studies I'm talking about, including with the brain waves themselves are the first to be done. So we're, we're really just beginning to learn about float therapy and how powerful it is. But what I could tell you in the patients who have anxiety disorders, where every moment of the day, like say you have generalized anxiety, it's bubbling to the surface, right? They would report that a couple days post float, the anxiety once again would start percolating. So it, it suggests to me that, you know, you know, maybe once to twice a week should be the typical schedule for somebody under high stress and anxiety. If you're working out intensively every day, I think you should be doing it every day that you're doing that strenuous workout. For the average, you know, healthy person who's not working out very intensively, you know, maybe once a week or once a month. But I th I think you have to sort of cater it to your stress levels. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's incredible. Dr. Feinstein, that's so valuable. I think our, our audience is going to find so much value in our conversation today. I know you've got so many things going on. I'd love to invite you back on when you are able to uh, announce the research you're working on. And uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you very much for your time. I'd love for you to tell the audience more about where they can they can be in touch with you or learn about your research. Yeah, so this past year, we started the Float Research Collective, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. It's uh, all online now. Um, clinicalfloat.org is our website. And on all the social media platforms, our handle is at Float Research. And we're just beginning. Uh, we just launched actually this past month. I gave a presentation at the Float Conference where I talked about my vision to actually completely shift society's idea of treating suffering and pain and anxiety with pills towards something more naturalistic like floating. And this fundraising campaign where floating is going to go head to head against both benzos and opioids hmm. has just launched. We're trying to raise $10 million to do these proper randomized controlled trials where we're going to show that not only are we as effective as these highly addictive pills, but our effects last even longer. To me, this is going to be, I think, paradigm shifting because suddenly doctors are going to realize there's a non-pharmacological alternative to anxiety and pain reduction. So please check us out. Donate if you're able to. This is going to be a big mission to, to go against the behemoths of big pharma. I'm excited because I think we're going to win this battle. Honestly, when you look at the data we've published over the past uh, uh, five years, when you look at the presentation I just gave, there, there's been a lot of replication. And I think we're actually perfectly positioned to take on things like Xanax and oxycodone and show that we could reduce suffering in as reliable of a manner, but not have all these horrible side effects and this high rate of addiction, totally safe and no side effects. This is what's so incredible to me about floating is it, you know, coming at it from a medical perspective, we were talking about you know, the, the CO2 manipulations there, that's not completely safe. You better wear that oxygen ring. You might pass out, right? Mm -hmm. In floating, it's 
literally one of the safest interventions I've ever witnessed. And in all the safety studies we've done so far, even in patients with severe panic disorder, they're finding this environment to be enormously relieving of tension and anxiety and stress. And people with chronic pain, especially back pain, they're finding tremendous relief from pain just by going into this environment. And it's immediate. It's like they, they say it's different than an opioid where it numbs your pain, but you still feel it. When you have back pain and you float, the sensation itself is gone. It's a very different sort of pain reduction mm. than you would normally get, say, by taking a pill. So to me, the, this is my life mission right now is I'm, I'm trying to get floating approved as a medical modality, something that doctors could prescribe instead of reaching for that pill pad. They could say, here's a dozen float sessions. And guess what? You're not going to have to pay for it because it's going to be covered by insurance now. I love that. And I definitely think everyone in the audience should go and donate even just a few dollars if you can. If you know somebody who has anxiety, if you know somebody who's suffering depression or pain, definitely go support the float research. Thanks, Dr. Feinstein. Thanks again for joining me. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. For full episode guides with important takeaways and bonus resources, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash learn. If you enjoy the show and find value in the content, please subscribe, share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who would benefit from this content, leave us a review, and support our sponsors. You can see the full list of show sponsors, discounts, and get exclusive Muscle Intelligence deals at muscleintelligence.com slash resources. To join our private community and get VIP access to my master classes, upcoming muscle camps, and other resources that we don't post anywhere else, head to muscleintelligence.com slash community. Most of all, thank you very much for your trust, for your time, and most importantly, for supporting health and fitness in this world. Enjoy your day, and I look forward to seeing you here next week. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.